righty, here we go. It is episode 77 of a brand new Stick to Hockey Live. Jason Martinez, and there he is coming to us from north of the border, from the fourth period.com, the fourth period, and uh, at ADeMarco25 on Twitter. It is Anthony DeMarco. What's going on, Ant? Not too much, man. What's up with you? Not much. Three-game road trip in the bag, and uh, apparently they ended it with a dud, I saw. <laughs> Somebody who covers the kind of covers the team uh, reported they ended it with a dud. Would you describe that game against Nashville as ending it with a dud? No, I, I don't think a dud is a fair thing. Was it their best game in the world? Probably not. But I mean, I think all in all, they played a a decent hockey game. They came away with a point. They they have what now points in their last. Uh, Six, they're four zero and two in their last six. They get five of possible six points on the road trip. And look, I mean, it's uh, they 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 won the battle in the shot share. They obviously lost the expected goals battle by a bit and the Corsi number for sure. It wasn't their best game by any stretch. I thought they had a really good second period, maybe kind of pittered out a bit, but they still come away with a point. And I think signs of a good team is when you're even able to salvage something out of not your best game and not to say that the flyers you know were should be patting themselves on the back for just getting a point but if that's one of the worst games that they've played over the last little bit i think it's a good sign i I look at it and i think that the the effort may have been even you know the execution wasn't there they they weren't and saris was great in the game i don't think they got goalied in the game I think you need to put more traffic around a goalie like Soros, who's incredibly athletic. And when he's on, you just got to disrupt him because the one thing that he doesn't have is size. So I think you put more traffic on him and and you can have more success. But, you know, I look at it and I go, okay, that game to me um, may have been, you know, one of their top three effort games of the season. I thought that they just fucking spilled it in the game. I thought they worked their ass off in the game. Um, they just didn't get results. And, you know, part of that is the fact that they don't have elite finishers and it is harder for them to score, especially when a goalie's dialed in like that. But uh, I had no problem with their effort in the game last night. I thought that they absolutely spilled it. And it was a shame that it kind of came down to that weird goal in overtime where Arison thinks he's got it squeezed. But, it, you know, it's hard to know if you have that puck squeeze. You're just, as a goalie, like that happens. If you don't have your glove or you don't have it covered or in your chest, you're just squeezing down on it going, okay, I, I have it. You don't know if you do because you got a huge chest protector and arm protectors on. You can't feel the edges of the puck when you're trying to squeeze. And it squirted out behind him. Good on Philip Forsberg for playing to the whistle. Flyers didn't play the whistle, but they did. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, I thought some lines were better than others. Some players were better than others. Like the top line with Katori centering Forster and connecting, I thought was really good once again. Yeah, probably yeah. Deloria and Scott Lawton, uh, a night that they would probably like to forget about. Not a terrible night for Zamula and Ristolainen, but not one of their best games. And look, all in all, they were slightly outplayed, I think. I, I think it's fair to say by Nashville. But they're still, still able to walk away with a point, you know. And yep. the fact that they've been able to maintain, even in games where they're outplayed, they don't crater. And they'll still try. And even when things aren't going their way, they're still working their asses off. And look, if you want to say that it wasn't the best game that they've had over the road trip or one of the, the lesser games in a while, I think that's fair to say. But I to thought they played better a, in that game than they did against Arizona. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, some games yeah. you're going to... 
play a bit worse and get rewarded for it. And other games you're going to play a bit better and walk away with only a point. And some games you're going to walk away with no point. But I mean, they've come away with a point in at least six games now. They've gotten, like I said, five of the six points on the road trip. And I think they should be very happy with their recent stretch of play. Yeah, I, I agree. And right away, we get a question from Hunter. He says, do you guys think it could have been blown dead in OT? The Flyers gave up two goals to not getting a whistle, not blaming stripes on the OT goal. Uh, just thought a whistle would have happened. Yeah, they could have, but the ref was in the right position and saw that it wasn't covered. <laughs> so uh, if the ref's in the wrong position, then you probably do get a whistle, but the ref didn't know that the puck was loose. No, I, I don't think it should have been blown dead. I really do because it wasn't covered. No. Uh, at, at first glance watching, you go, oh, he's got it, he's got it. And then you thought maybe that Forsberg picked it out of an area that he did have it covered, but he didn't. It fell behind him and the puck was loose, and he just fished it and got it. I, I thought the play that should have been blown dead was on their second goal, the McCarran goal, because Guarded Hathaway touches that puck up on the delayed penalty call. Yeah. Point. He clearly touches it up. Then he gets into a scrum on the left side, loses his stick, and then he's unable to get a stick back there when McCarran, when that puck on the broken play kind of drops at his feet. He's got no stick. He can't defend it. And it ends up being a goal that should have been blown dead. The one in overtime should not have been blown dead. No, no, for sure. Like sometimes it goes your way, sometimes it doesn't. And the Flyers, <laughs> even though it was, <laughs> but even though it, they were on the wrong end of it, they were just that. That was just a result of a ref in very good position. Yep. And look, that that stuff on the touch ups with like penalty kills and all that, like that happens more than we think. But obviously, yeah. with the benefit of review, we're able to see when refs do uh, make errors. But all in all, it, we, like the, these things happen game in and game out. When you play 82 games in a regular season, there are going to be errors on the officials' parts. There's going to be some times where it's a questionable thing that you have to look at the review to get a clear answer on. But all in all, like this is just a, a normal hockey game for me. They were slightly outplayed by Nashville. It was the last game of a road trip, and they came away with a point. So, I mean, you can nitpick some negatives, but on a macro scale, this is still a very positive uh, stretch for the team right now. Yeah, I mean, look, in the power play in the first period, they have three power plays in the period, and you end up with seven shots on goal. And they had 15 shots in the first. They had seven shots on the power play, but they were unable to solve Soros at that point. And, you know, I, I thought the power play, despite that they didn't score, I, I guess that's ultimately how you measure it, but um, I thought it was some of the best it's looked all year. Guys were moving all over the place. I would have preferred a little more traffic and get a big body in front. I wouldn't be opposed to putting Ristolainen down there around the net again, to be honest with you at this point. But uh, that that's an area that obviously costs them in the game. Although I thought the power play looked good on those three. Um, it didn't score. And ultimately that's what matters. Yeah. And I think that the power plays where you real what what's highlighted on the power play is what they're missing and what they don't have. And that's top end talent because that's when top tier players really come to the forefront. And with the side of Tra with um with the exception rather of Travis Konechny, I mean, is there any slam dunk top line player that the Flyers would have on any given team? Probably not. And they probably don't have a power play quarterback that would be on any team's top power play unit for a slam dunk either. Like maybe on some lesser teams for sure, but on any given team like they only have one guy in Konechny who would be 
on a top power play unit. You have Morgan Frost who shows his flashes. I think Forster could get there eventually. And I do agree, like with Ristolainen, for as bad as he did play year over year in Buffalo, the one area of the game that he did actually have success year over year most times was the power play, whether that was in a trigger position, maybe with his big booming shot, because he probably does have the best point shot of any Flyers defenseman right now, or in front of the net. And we saw them experiment with that last year. And, you know, I, I always get a lot of pushback when I suggest that Risto should be on the top power play unit, especially now since he's been kind of rebuilt into an all-defense third-pairing guy um, under uh, Tortorella and Brad Shaw. But, I like, what do you have to lose at this point? They're operating at, what, like 12% right now? I think it did yeah. below 12%. And that's a big... And that's a big improvement to where they were just a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> it's it's hard to call that an improvement, but it actually is. Uh, but it's still it needs to be way better. I mean, and I think you're dead on. That's where elite talent, you know, eats. That's where they eat at. Uh, Hunter also says, "What about Joel Faraby at net front? Uh, he has eight goals this season, almost being on top of the goal. He does. Eight of his ten goals are scored within three feet of the goal line. Uh, but he's not a net front guy on a power play." He just doesn't have the size for that. He's going there and migrating there and migrating to the back door and being all over the blue paint in flow play. But I, I don't think he's a net front power play guy at all. I don't see that out of him. Well, I mean, him as a power play guy in general has never really kind of struck me as something that would be his forte. And last night, according to Natural Statric, he actually played the most of any forward at five on five. So, I mean, his usage is obviously more advantageous to even strength because he's always kind of been that, you know, master, uh, a jack of all trades, master of none type of guy. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a case to be made that maybe on the second unit, just because the Flyers do lack offensive firepower. But I mean, uh, he's not a guy that I think you have to get out there. Like I've posted a power play that I think that they should run with. And I think they were actually using it for a stretch of games with the exception of having York on the top. Pair uh, on the top unit instead of Ristolainen. But I think with the way Katori is playing, and he was arguably their best forward last night, Agreed. he should be the net front guy. He's had success as that, like, kind of JVR impersonator, that tripod role in front. And then you have Konechny and Forster, whether one's on the half wall or one's on the um, in the high slot, they're kind of interchangeable there as trigger guys for Cam or for uh, Morgan Frost, who should be on his offside off the half wall, kind of the main facilitator. And then mm. I would have Ristolainen at the top because he has the best point shot of any of their Flyers defensemen. Like, you know, you, you see Sanheim and York kind of like taking reps as like that top guy on the on the top power play unit. And Walker's obviously gotten looks as well on the second unit. But with as much as York and Sanheim play at five on five, like Sanheim just under 19 minutes last night, York at 17 and a half minutes. I don't think that they have to be on the power play each and every game because neither of those guys are far and away number one defensemen. They've shown stretches at time, much more so Sanheim, but I don't think that those are guys that can consistently eat that much time at even strength as well as being your top and uh, power play defenseman. So with Risto kind of being deployed as the number five night in and night out, give him some of that power play time. And what do you have to lose? Because it's not working and he's had success in the past. And you balance minutes a little bit better by doing that exactly. too. I, 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 I agree with you. It's something I talked about with Bill on Monday's Flyers Daily. We're talking about sustainability, what is sustainable and what's not. And the one thing I wonder, you know, going into the game last night, Sanheim's one second behind John Carlson for the most average time on ice per games played this season. And I go, okay, what's a way 
to, you know, not let him wear down number one and, you know, protect his five on five play and a little bit of penalty kill. And that's to remove him from the power play. You know, whether that can be in one game, if you only get one power play, it's 45 seconds or a minute. And then in a game where you get three, four power plays, then you, you know, you can use them in different situations at five on five a little bit more uh, because you're not putting them out there on all those power play minutes. Um, so that's something I would look to do. And look, it's not beyond the realm that teams use a third pairing defenseman as a guy they shield in five on five and don't put on PK, but is their power play guy. Like we've seen that with ghost as a third pairing guy, or, I mean, you can go back to, you know, Tony D'Angelo is a third yep. pairing guy. Like you're shielding him defensively and in five and five to put him in that role of being a power play quarter, even Yandel, which didn't work. You couldn't shield him from anything yeah. <laughs> it was a strong show at that point in his career. But, um, you know, we'll see if they're able to kind of uh, get that figured out and, and how that kind of, I guess, in some ways evolves. I don't know if it is going to evolve, but I think they're just going to have, it's just going to be a year where the power play isn't going to get above 15%. I'm not expecting it to. Yeah, and we could debate like the defenseman, but at the end of the day, it's because of their lack of top end talent at uh, forward, right? And and I agree with Sanheim. Like the guy is playing the most minutes at five on five, is playing the second most minutes on the power play per game, is playing the most minutes shorthanded, and I just think that you have to find a way to get his minutes down a bit. And you see Risto; he's only playing fifty seconds per game on the power play and actually Sandheim's averaging more power play time on ice per game than York as well. So I was mistaken on that. And you look at Risto who he's only averaging 40 seconds on the power play, 50 seconds on the man advantage per game. And you just see how hard the coaching staff is really riding those top four guys across yeah. the board in all situations in Sandheim, Walker, York, and Sealer kind of lesser with Sealer because he's gotten next to no power play time. But the other three are just getting deployed so heavily at even strength, shorthanded power play. Risto and Sealer's five on five usage has been comparable. But I think that if you could give Risto some more special teams time, like take some of the power play minutes away from Travis Sanheim, and then maybe even on the PK, like lower York or Walkers just a little bit and give that stuff to Risto. And I know they're trying to ease him in. He's only played eight games, but I think that with the way that he's evolved his game under Bradshaw the last 13 months and just his history with success on the power play, he is a guy that you can just gently ease into more time on uh, the power play and shorthanded. And to your point, it would be also a way to get Travis Sanheim's minutes down a bit because I think behind um, Carlson and Drew Doughty, he's averaging the most ice time per game in the entire NHL at 25 minutes and 34 seconds. So if you could get that down to maybe a bit under 24, I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but a few shifts here and there per game could do they a world big. in terms of longevity. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Now he's third in the league. He's five seconds behind Doughty, who's tops and two seconds. Um, the other night he was actually number one, but you know, that's uh, a, 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 a number that'll change throughout the season more than Seth Jones by nine seconds. Who's in fourth. Um, let me ask you about a couple guys in particular. Um, going back to the Colorado game on Saturday, you know, they have the turnover that happens at the Flyer Blue Line. This is on the Farabee goal. 
And there's two forwards back, or there's a forward and a D back, Cam York and a forward. I forget who it was. Uh, but the turnover happens in the neutral zone because Sandheim kind of challenges the play. It's like a shitter get off the pot pinch in the neutral zone. And it causes the turnover. But he doesn't fall back at, into his traditional, let me be behind the three forwards. And when we go back up the ice, he recoils in the neutral zone and makes himself an option for the the outlet pass to then attack. He gets the puck, and he crosses the ice to the right side, enters the zone, and then instead of going behind the net with possession of the puck, looking for the trailer or to send it net front, he drops the shoulder and goes hard to the net. And in doing so, he creates chaos around the blue paint, and Brink ultimately gets it and sends it to Farabee, slams it into a wide-open net. Um, we've seen that on a couple of occasions this year where he'll, he has a little bit of power to his game and takes the puck immediately to the blue paint without circling that we watched him for years, circle the net uh, when he gets it, joins the rush, but now he's going hard to the net. I'm just stunned at the mental difference and decisiveness to go hard to the net. Uh, I didn't think we'd ever see this from Travis Sanheim, this, this renewed, you know what? I'm an alpha type attitude and I'm going to go hard to the net. Is this shocking you as well? Because I never saw this coming, this element of his game. I didn't see him gaining 20 pounds of muscle either, but um, this is certainly a new and improved Travis Sanheim from that perspective too. Oh, a hundred percent. And you go all the way back to 2019, 20, the first year of AV. And he had a pretty good season that year, predominantly playing with Justin Braun to start the year. And then eventually with Phil Myers, and that was a pair that many of us thought would probably be a staple of this blue line for years to come. And then you saw how he was kind of pushed around in the playoffs, behind the net specifically against the Islanders, just getting bodied. And even when he had good years, the biggest knock on his game is that he wasn't able to absorb contact, specifically below the hash marks. Yep. He's a big guy, six foot three, I believe, but obviously had not filled out that frame. And that was clearly something that didn't sit well with John Tortorella. I had heard that, you know, he only played well when the chips weren't down. Because when the chips are down, there's less ice out there. There's more physicality. When games don't mean a fucking thing, then, you know, it's more loosey-goosey and just skill-based. And we always knew how good he was with the puck. And I brought him up a few months back after seeing him the first five games or so to some with the Flyers. And I compared him, the, that part of his game, to Braden Coburn how smooth of a skater he is, the size, and now how he can absorb that contract. But the same person pointed out to me, yeah, he's Coburn, but much better with the puck. And mm. that was the knock on Coburn's game, is that he wasn't good with the puck in decision-making. Yeah. Travis Sandheim's always been good with the puck, always had good outlets pass, has probably always had the best IQ, even when Provorov was playing at his best. It was just that he wasn't durable physic physically. But now that he's put on that X amount of muscle, and now that he's unlocked that part of his game, that a lot of credit should go to the coaching staff for challenging him and recognizing that there was more to his game to give than being just a, guy, a good defenseman with the puck. I think you're seeing the proof is in the pudding. And, you know, he's what he has the benefit is, is that he's naturally a big guy. He's a yeah. guy with a stick that gets a lot of that covers a lot of area of the ice. And he already has that IQ. And he can but, skate. And he can skate. And now he's really kind of turned into like that modern day defenseman. And it's yeah. not to say that being big and being able to absorb contact is everything, 
but you're seeing now, and I've heard Mike Johnson say this all the time, and I love how he meshes the analytics with the eye test, is that big and skilled will always trump small and skilled. And we're seeing that with Travis Sanheim this year. Yeah, To me, he was a long body that was a finesse player. But now he's a long body that's filled out and has a little bit of power to his game, but he can also go finesse. He, he can kind of play both ways. And I think when you can throw that variability at an opposition, then it makes it you know, more dangerous as a player. I think I, I just didn't think he could get to this level. And if he can stay at this level or around it, you know, absorbing heavy minutes and doing so on the right side where that contract looks like. And I think about this, Ant. Craig Berube is probably still employed in St. Louis if Tory Krug doesn't waive that no trade clause. <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, that's probably the case, right? Well, I mean, look, like uh, if, if, that, if that, he's there playing like this, <laughs> yeah, and he would probably be playing on the top pair alongside Colton Pareko, and Ooh, that's a team that I think is still that is still <laughs> trying to figure out ways to trade a Tory Krug or to a lesser extent at Colton Pareko. And we don't know what else was involved in that deal. Maybe it was a first round pick as well. But yeah, all this to say is that some of the best deals are the ones you don't make. And I think that's proving to be true with Travis Sanheim. And I think that's maybe something that for all the people that think that you or I are just Tortorella defenders, I think if they could, if Tortorella could go back on it, maybe him pushing to move on from Travis Sanheim before that eight-year contract kicked in was something that he would have liked a mulligan mulligan on had it happened. But all this to say, it worked out well. Krug didn't waive his no-trade clause. And now we could all sing Kumbaya together because Sanheim really took that to heart, something that he told me when I interviewed him about a month and a half ago. And now he's playing the best hockey of his career. And, you know, it happens all the time that players, specifically defensemen, don't find their stride until later on in their career. Look at Mark Giordano. Yeah. Mark Giordano won a Norris when he was 35 years old. Now, this isn't to say that I think Travis Sanheim's going to be a top five or 10 defenseman in the NHL for the next decade. I think we need a much larger sample size than that. But to this juncture, I mean, I think that maybe with the exception of Konechny and Carter Hart, he's been the team's MVP. I would expect him to be an all-star. And I've said this the past two weeks, and I'll say it again. I think that sooner rather than later, he should get a letter on his jersey for how important he's meant to that back end. Yeah, you're just hearing all the right things coming out when these guys speak after games at availabilities. And this room seems like it's matured, even though there's a lot of young guys. I asked Torts about this on the Hockey and Hounds that came out today when I talked to him on Monday. Uh, I said, have you ever, at that time it was 26 games. I said, have you ever played 10 defensemen in the first 26 games of a season? Do you realize the Flyers have played 10 defensemen this year? I bet they're going to play 12 different defensemen all year. Because I think that Adder will get a game. I think Ginning will get a game. And that'll make it 12. He's played 10 different defensemen this year. Now, Ristolainen obviously was hurt for a while. Stahl was out for a month. But here are the here are the 10 that have played so far. Sanheim, York, Walker, Sealer, Zamula, Stahl, Ristolainen, Emil Andres played four games. Victor Methy played one. And Louis Belpedio played 12. I mean, that's a big fucking number to play 10D a third into the season. Yeah, and like you said. And have the record they have. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And, and like you said, like depending on what happens with Walker and Sealer and depending on where the team is in three months' time, post-trade deadline, maybe you're going to want to get a look at an Adam Jinning or an Ronnie Adder. Maybe you'll take another look 
at Emil Andre, like that number could easily get up to 12 with ease here. Yeah, so, I mean, I their, their back end is obviously it's not top heavy, but they're deep. Like, you know, there are some that probably think that a Ronnie Adder could, you know, hold like hold himself above water at the NHL level. Jinning is someone that I think has been surprising given on how low the entire organization was on him when he was drafted by the two regimes ago under Ron Hextall and Chris Pryor. So, I mean, they are deep. Obviously, Andre in a class of his own. He's getting valuable minutes as the top dog down there with Lee Valley. Helgi Grons is probably someone he would have liked to see more out of at this end. Ethan Sampson, probably not playing his best after the first year of turning pro, but this isn't even accounting for the guys that they drafted this past year, um, most notably Oliver Bonk. Two years ago, there's that big kid who's playing in the NCAA right now. I forget his name, a left shot D. Um, Hunter McDonald, I think. Yeah, Hunter McDonald. Yeah, mm-hmm. Hunter McDonald. So, and you've heard Jonesy allude to the blue line as something that he thinks that needs to be really rebuilt at the NHL level. And it feels like they've already got the jump on that. And I think a lot of credit goes to Brent Flair and his drafting going back to 2019 and a good reason as to why he's still employed under the new regime headed by Danny Briere and Keith Jones. And I know you've uh, done some reporting and, and Fridge has as well regarding Sealer and Walker. And I know Fridge, I think, mentioned it on Hockey Night in Canada that one team in particular um, contacted the Flyers about the combo platter, about Sealer and Walker together in a deal. I get to, My suspicion is that was the Leafs. Um, what are you hearing on Sealer and Walker as trade targets? And we'll lump out Bristol line into this conversation as well. Well, I, I – Reach. I had someone reach out to me and suggest it was the Leafs. And then someone I know close to the situation in Calgary said that they were all over the flames for Zadorov and, and uh, Tanev. So it would make sense that they would have pivoted to Sealer and Walker, maybe a tier or two below Zadorov and Tanev. Reached out to someone close with the Flyers, had that shot down. Um, and the same person told me that the Leafs have not been prepared to part with their first round pick for any of the Flyers players currently on the table. Obviously, we're not talking about a Konechny or a Sandheim, but for any of the play, the Flyers that are on the trade market right now, the, the Leafs are not prepared to give up a first round pick. So some mixed responses there. Is it them trying to keep it under wraps because nothing's close? You don't want to upset the room. Both Fridge and I have alluded to that that the management doesn't really want to fuck with that with as well as the team is playing. Who knows? But I think that Connecting dots, a safe assumption would be the Leafs, even though it was shot down by this one person with knowledge of the situation. I mean, if the Leafs aren't ready to part with their first round pick, I don't see how there's any trade talks that are going to get off the ground because they need a right shot defenseman first and foremost. Obviously, they could stand to add a guy like Sealer, but one person said to me about the Leafs is that they don't have much to give and what they do have to give, they don't want to part with like a prospect like um, Easton Cowan or Fraser Minton. I know in particular the Flyers have liked uh, Fraser Minton going back to his draft year, a big centerman. That's a position that the Flyers obviously want to bolster and they want to add size. So he would check two boxes at once. Yeah, But I don't think the Leafs are in a position there. They had a conversation with the Flyers uh, last Wednesday regarding Ristolainen. I can tell you that with 100% certainty. Talks haven't progressed much because the Leafs are not a th- enthralled with three-year term remaining on his deal, and they would want retention on the Flyers' part. I think the Flyers can be flexible on that front because they're already retaining on Kevin Hayes until 2026, I believe. 
retaining on risk line until 2027 probably wouldn't be ideal. At this juncture, risk line is probably viewed as a $4 million defenseman, but that AAV will age gracefully with the cap going up. Like yeah. in the final two years of his deal, that AAV will probably not look too bad with a salary cap over $90 million. So, I mean, at this juncture, the Flyers are negotiating from a position of power. I had one person tell me yesterday that there are no negotiations because with as well as the Flyers are playing, they just get to sit back and enjoy while other teams try and pry some of these defensemen away from them. But they're in no rush to upset the apple cart in that locker room either. Boy, isn't it amazing how fast you can change leverage? 100%. Just the, the team playing well and the byproduct of the team playing well or individual players playing well, Walker, Sealer, Ristolainen, right? Yeah. And now all of a sudden their value's up. Everybody yep. will tell you that in a rebuild, you got to lose. Here's the thing in a rebuild, selling off assets in a rebuild when your team blows <laughs> doesn't give you any value because nobody's playing well. If you're losing, if you're getting shit kicked every night, there's no value in it. Well, look at last year at the trade deadline where everyone burned Fletcher at the stake for how he fumbled the JVR stuff. Yeah. And look, that, that wasn't great the way he handled it. But I had another executive tell me who was deal who was negotiating with Fletcher in regards to JVR is that he's just like he he valued the player too much because yeah. the player wasn't playing well. So there, there's out. a double-edged sword with that. And yeah. then what do you end up doing at the trade deadline? You trade McEwen for a fifth-round pick and Brendan Lemieux. And did they do, oh, they traded um, the centerman there, Patrick Brown, for yeah. a late round pick to Ottawa because the team was playing like shit, so they had no leverage. Now the team's playing well. And, you know, a lot of people have laughed at the Flyers holding out for a first round pick for Sean Walker. Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. With the exception of Chris Tanev, there's no pending UFA right shot defenseman on the market that would be undisputably ranked higher than Sean Walker. Now, in, in regards to the Leafs, I think that, and Fridge has said this numerous times, that they're not going to move on anyone until they get clarity on Chris Tanev. It feels like Brad Living, who has history with Tanev, brought him to Calgary over from uh, the Canucks back in 2020, I believe it was, that they want to get him signed. And yeah, it's exactly what they would need. But at the same time, General Manager Craig Conroy in Calgary knows this. And them too, they're yeah. on a they're I think they're on the bubble in the Western Conference. So I don't think it's a slam dunk that Conroy and the Flames are going to be in a hurry to get rid of Chris Tanev, who in a lot of ways could be argued as the most important defenseman on that roster. And you've already moved on from Zadorov. You have another pending UFA in Hannafin who doesn't yeah. want to re-sign there. So I think eventually maybe the Leafs will look back to the Flyers. And Ristolina is more of the style of player that they want, that physical right shot D. And you look back to the last two trade deadlines. They acquired Luke Shen last year and Ilya Labushkin two years ago. Yeah. And those are both cut from the same cloth as Ristolainen. Three-year term might not be ideal, but at the same time, if you miss out on Tanev, you might not have a lot of options. And there are going to be other teams that are going to be interested in Ristolainen if you do put them on the market. Even yeah. at just a 20% retention to put, take them down to a $4 million player. 20% yeah. of that salary, um, which would, would probably be palatable. Um, last thing, um, I want to mention this to you. I get this DM from a guy named Andy. I won't give his last name. Uh, and, he, and he put a tweet in here from Dan, the Flyer fan. You know how I get along with Dan, just mm -hmm. fucking swimmingly. And he said, the tweet from Dan says, the guy who led the AHL in power play goal scoring is currently sitting in the Flyers press box, Ole Lixell. And Andy said to me, he said, he's not wrong here. Kind of stupid to bring Lixell along and not play him. Delarier is a waste of a spot. Move Lawton down and give Lixell some third line minutes, like 15 a game. 
and see what you have in him. And my response was this, and I just want to get your thoughts on it. Because I said, at first glance, you could make that case. But considering the spot the team is in at the moment, it would be idiotic. And here's why. I said, with the current roster, the team has won four straight games and points in six of their last seven. Uh, they're playing their best team hockey of the season. Delarie adds uh, size to a group that lacks it big time. And that element of Delaria in the lineup protects small guys that doesn't show up on the stat sheet. Not every player that is a forward needs to be a point producer. You need to have an element of toughness and create fear for your opponent. And I said, come on, man. I think you understand the game at a higher level. This take from Dan is short-sighted and doesn't go to any second-level thinking. And the other element is that a guy like Lixell is also on the trip because they're far away. If someone gets hurt, you can't get somebody from Lehigh Valley to Colorado and stat, you know, quickly. You need to have that extra body on the trip, the long-distance road trips. Um, I want to see what Lixell has, too. But this is already a very small lineup. And taking a guy like Delarier out doesn't seem to, to be the right move for me to get Lixell in, who hasn't shown a lot at the NHL level, especially for a team uh, that had just won four straight games. Yeah, I, I have mixed feelings on this. I do agree that taking Delorier out, who I don't think – I think Delorier hasn't been great this year. I think that there is an argument to be made, but at the same time, you're not going to take Deloria out and play Lexel in that role. And I think Lexel, the game he did play, played six shifts, right? And yeah. that look, was on short order, though. You know, like they didn't know he was going to play. They're just like, okay, we got to get, we got to put him in there and we'll see what we can do. See, I had someone tell me a few weeks back when uh, Kate's got injured and I was acting, asking about who could maybe be the first call up. And Lexel was suggested to me, but was also noted that like ideally you want to call a guy like that up but in a top nine capacity so yeah. when they recalled them to just kind of be like that 13th forward and it when he did play not play many shifts i was a bit surprised i thought maybe like an adam brooks or a cooper marodi or rec gardner would have fit that mold better but i'm also not going to take deloria and play lake cell so I, I just don't think he should have been called up in general and you know i think the I think the suggestion and alluding to Delorey not playing well is perfectly valid, but yeah, I don't I want, I don't want Lexell to take his role. Like if you want to take out Delorey and play, well, he's saying move to move Lawton down to the fourth line and take Delorey out. So have paling Lawton and Hathaway on the fourth line and put Lexell in that third line role. And, and like, you know, first at first blush, I get it, but you have to consider the team is playing their best, team yeah. hockey right now coaches are not going to make that move at that time yeah and if you do that then you're fucking with two or three lines as opposed to one line exactly. that, that's that's the tough part when things that. Like, are going well <laughs> yeah well, in theory that would make sense like if the team yeah. was playing like shit then yeah like Lawton, Paling, Fuck, yeah. mix and it Hathaway, all away get out that's the a perfect fourth line yep. but with the team playing so well you don't want to start fucking with like players and spots up and down the lineup uh -huh. so I, I i'm perfectly on board with trying someone else in delorier's spot because i don't think he's been good this year um i think he was brutal last night so if you want to put Rhett gardner in that spot or call up wade allison and put allison in that spot or whoever sure but lexel's not that guy so if you want to make the argument that lexel should have never been called up in the first place i could hear yeah. that and i think there's validity to it but to just simply replace Delory with Lexel, that doesn't fit it because of all the reasons we just alluded to. Yeah, you always have to go to the second level in the thing. That's what I said to him. You know, at first blush, yeah, you can make the case. 
but you have to consider all of these other elements. It all goes into it. All right. I know you got to get out. I got to get out as well. Uh, quick episode today. Um, that is episode 77. Make sure you follow Ant on Twitter at ADemarco25 and read him on the fourth period, uh, the fourth period.com as well. Great reporting there. And great stuff. We'll talk next week, brother. Looking forward to it, man. Take it easy. See you, everybody. Yeah.